What's up, y'all? I am filmmaker Justin Simeon, and welcome to another episode of Don't At Me, my podcast where we go beyond the knee-jerk reactions with emerging culture makers. In this episode, I get a mindset makeover by Queer Eyes culture expert and Houston's own Karamo Brown. I feel like I gotta say his name like that, you know? He's like, he's, he's a person that commands an entrance. You can fix someone's hair, you can fix their outfit, you can change their house, and you can give somebody a new meal to eat, but unless you figure out why they didn't do that on their own, they're just gonna go right back. Mm. And it was like, clearly we got to get to the emotional core of what is going on, what is stopping you. And, um, but season one, they weren't having it. They were like, this is a lighthearted show. The original show was lighthearted. We don't want tears. Like literally, I got told so many times in season one, stop. We get into how he developed his role as the culture expert uh, on Queer Eye, of course, his being the first open blay on the real world and living as his authentic self. Tap in. Welcome, Culture Machines, to a live on Zoom taping of Don't At Me. Although, if you're hearing it now, you're probably listening. You already missed it. It was We did it a while. Anyway, if you don't know, I'm your host, Justin Simeon. And today joining me, honey, I have author, therapist, social worker, culture guru, actor, personality, fellow Houstonian, Emmy Award winner, okay, and fellow Blay. Karamo Brown, what's up? Hey, hey, boo, how are you? I'm good. I always forget you're from Houston, too, which makes so much sense because, like, there is something about gay Black people from Houston that's the same. I don't know what it is. I can't put it into words. Well, Have you, you figured it out yet? <laughs> it's because we had to grow up around racist-ass white folks and homophobic-ass white folks. Black folks. <laughs> and every, it's like you just... You just become very like, okay, girl. We're like all in the same like form or something. I don't know. All in the same form. It's like, girl. So it's like a, it's like a chill, but it's also an intensity, like at the same time, I feel like. Very much so. I don't know. Very much so. I actually could never go back to Texas because I one I think I don't like about Houston is what I call the um, Texas pause. Um, and I'm more of a, it's like when you ask someone a question or you, you're trying to go somewhere with friends, everything is on a little bit of slow motion. I know like we listen to oh, screwed yeah. up music growing up, but oh, it's, yeah. it's like, I don't mind my music being screwed up, but like, I don't need you to like be on a delay when I'm like, Hey, are we doing this? Yeah. And they're like, well, let me see. I'm like, no, no, no. My well, energy. The other thing about like the vibe in Houston is like plans are like suggestions. You suggestions, know, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, no. go to the movies tonight. <laughs> Yeah. You have no idea if that means you're going to go, what's going to happen. I do remember that shit. Um, okay, so before we came on, because it's been a while, and I wanted to refresh myself. And so I watched the YouTube video of you watching your season of The Real World <laughs> for like <laughs> the first time in like years. And I have to say, it was so triggering, Karamo, because one, <laughs> I remember that season so well. And two, it was all like rushing back to me. And yeah. I forgot about the microaggressions. I forgot about you being chased out into the streets. I mean, let me tell you. For having so a black many, person reaction. I'm like, it's like, it's like, I watch it back now and I'm like, the things, I mean, we still putting up with these, the BS, but like, <laughs> like ugh, it was, it, it literally is triggering for me to watch. Like people forget, like literally I was in a club and the police warned me because some yes. white person had said, you got a gun. And then all my roommates were like, stop overreacting. To you. They said that to, to me. you. To me. They're like, why are you doing this? Why are you, Dude, over, why are you ruining everything? And I'm like, you know, I, just, I was the one harassed by the police, right? Y'all do know that. But, I remember seeing that and thinking like, I'm the only person who understood like it because I went to a very white college and yeah. I felt like I was the only person watching that that, under, that was on your side and understood innately yeah. why you were pissed off. The rest of them are like, what's going on? What are you, why are you ruining it? Um, and the reaction to you being gay because you had a hat on. It was just like a lot to process. <laughs> it was a lot. They're like, you wear hats? You're gay? It was like, yeah, girl. So have you been to gay clubs before? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. You're not, are you homosexual? Yeah, I'm gay. I would I never have no guessed. Clue. I yeah. would never have guessed. Yeah. Yes, you can do both. You can do both now. But I will say it was lovely because, okay, this is probably going to come out shady. 
I don't know that you were the first gay black person on reality TV, but you were the first out person on on real world and that or out black person on real world. And that combination of things was like for me watching at home because we we didn't see that anywhere like that really, you know, maybe growing up there was like RuPaul and you could kind of infer that certain celebrities are stars, but like no one was really showing the mix that like I just was all around me growing up and seeing you on that show was really, really important for me. Like it was really anchoring to be like, I know that guy, like I know that kind of person. And like, I understand what he is feeling and none of these things have been said before. Did you feel that at that (laughs) time? Why did you say this would be shady? Like you said- said Well, because I said something about you were the first out. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Because the girls. Thank you for around. asking me. Thank you for asking me to clarify. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> so people can really hear. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like the thing is what I love about even your show is that like you would think in 2020, like there would be more representation, but the unfortunate part is is that there's not representation. Yeah. So we know how Hollywood is, and Hollywood does not um, subscribe to equality and equity unless pressured. And then even then they get pressured, they do it for a little bit, and then they say, we've met our quota and we're yes, no one's talking about it and we're done. And so it's just, you know, it, it felt nice to kind of be a part of like showing people like this is who we were. Because yeah. like, as you know, we was popping and locking it in the clubs. We saw the black <laughs> game. It, like this was, it was not, you know, like, um, like I was, I remember going to like Atlanta's gay scene in the early 2000s was mm everything the dc scene the new york scene and then like but white america was just like that doesn't exist what are you talking about so it felt good to be a part of that to kind of show like this is who we are um but then also but but then also it was kind of like sucky because then it was like also around the time of like oprah damaging all of us by saying that we're all in dl and then here i come still in my matriculation of life talking about like i'm more masculine Uh and you know then started like basically hitting myself against my more effeminate or, you know, and it was just like problematic all around. And so I'm just glad like. I mean, it was all, we were all in that though. I mean, I just, I remember, first of all, you were like, you were very aspirational for me because like, I never had like my hairline together and my clothes. I was always like a little bit chubby, you know, you were the kind of black gay man that like I was trying to be, but couldn't (laughs) quite get there at the time. And um, I don't know, for me, you just so accurately reflected so much of, of my life and growing up and things that I was well, feeling. I appreciate that. I appreciate you know. that. And then I remember the next time I saw you was at some like Hollywood party, some black Hollywood party. And I was like, oh my God, there's Karamo's fine ass over there in the real world. <laughs> and we like, you know, just kind of like talked like very briefly. But yeah. I've been kind of following you from afar, really. And it's it's so, it's amazing what you've done, man. Like you, first of all, you've lived like 45 people's lives, first of all. Girl, I feel yeah, it. You, <laughs> you are a family man. You are all of those things I mentioned at the top. Um, so we're going to get into it a little bit about how you got there. But but before we do, I just want to talk about some things. So first of all, I want to mention, I loved your reaction to um, the Dear White People. I don't want to call it a parody because I don't know. I don't know. Um, shady reference, uh, yeah. celebration of... <laughs> Of it was because, a celebratory parody, you know. Yeah, because we like, you know, on, on the show, we, we literally like obsess over certain things when we're writing and we just put the things we're obsessed over. And one of the things that I remember so many times watching Queer Eye is like, if like the strength that Karamo has in this moment to just not say, <laughs> not say anything <laughs> and be like, mm, okay. And just like help these people meet them where they at. I mean, it's like saint level. And I just wanted to like point that out. Like that's literally, that was literally my intention behind that. that I, text, I text you immediately when I saw that because it literally, I was like, you know me so well. And literally, <laughs> and you know me so well because you have to live this as well. Of course. And it's so it's like, and all other black people have to live this as well, where it's like, you get in some situations and like, you just like are looking and like, okay, today am I gonna like cuss everybody out and pretend like I, I, you know, or am I just gonna be like, be the bigger person and do, you know, like all this shit. And that's, and there's a lot of times that I do feel that way on Queer Eye. Like, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm God honest, I'm so thankful for my castmate Tan, and he and I talked about this recently um, in the public, is that we look at each other all the time and give each other looks 
Like, like, girl, you see this? And like, if it wasn't for him, we just literally are just like, sometimes because my other castmates are very, um, they're loving, we get along, but there's things that because race is not a factor that they have to discuss and right. have to live consistently, there's things that go right over their head. And right. he and I are like, yeah, y'all did see this, right? And right. so I'm just so thankful. Because when you did that parody and it was like, look, here goes your Ku Klux Klan outfit. I'm like. <laughs> it's like, we, we can't talk about what I would, would like to talk about right now because yeah. that would be inappropriate done, and not helpful yeah. for this show. Not helpful. You know, but we, I do try, I do try to like make sure we're balancing in like really are talking about things that, you know, are pertaining to black folks and like not watering it down. And so, you know, yeah. it's, it's been a good journey. But yeah, it, I appreciate the parody. It's amazing to watch. And it's like, um, I mean, really, like you're so gifted at cutting to the heart of the matter. I mean, you've, you've created so many amazing moments. Like one of the things I think about a lot when I watch you on the show is um, you, you the, having to walk that line between representative and who you really are. You know, um, one of my favorite moments of the quarantine is right in the beginning, you posting this Instagram video, we were like, girl, hell no. <laughs> you were just mad. And you were like, why is everybody exercising? Why is everyone making lists? Why is yeah. everyone doing all the things that they never did? Like, I want to stay in bed all day. And you were the only person at that time in my feed <laughs> that was saying what I was feeling. It was the truth. Girl, everybody got up on day three of quarantine and was like, I know how to TikTok, bake bread, do all this stuff. And I was like- Start my business. It's like, yeah, why? Like, what am I missing here? Like, what am I missing? Because I'm not doing shit. And y'all yeah. are like all on it. But, so uh, how, how do you walk that line? Because it's like, you know, there's times when you're like, this is how I'm feeling, this is what it is. And there's times where you're like, you are like, you just snap into a higher power. You yeah. have compassion and grace and you can meet people where they're at. Like what's, how do, how do those two people play together in your head? I think, I think what it is is that I realized that those two people have to both have an equal voice because mm. not only does it make me feel like my emotions are valid, which they are no matter what I'm feeling. Um, it also reminds me to be patient with myself. And then I also, it helps me to connect better with other people because I think sometimes what I hate um, and not hate, because I don't hate anything, but what I dislike about certain individuals who are um, in a space where they're constantly giving inspiration mm. is that they act as if their day is perfect all the time. Right. And I think that, I think that is unattainable, mm -hmm. and I think it's unhealthy to tell people that you have to be happy and successful 24 seven. When right. the reality of it is that you have to actually just be patient with your emotional journey. Mm. And you have to be okay with the ups and the downs and understand that just as there's a lesson in the ups, there's also a lesson in the downs. Yes. And there is strength in the downs just as there's strength in the ups. And, um, and I think being able to kind of like say that helps me to kind of feel better and to connect better with other people. I think that's such good advice because like, you know, when people ask me like, what's the secret to writing or whatever, honestly, the hardest part about writing or directing or doing anything is just sitting down and dealing with your self-doubt. Yeah, that's it, right? <laughs> and just, and just like getting through the feeling that you're not shit. <laughs> I mean, that really is like, you feel, feeling like a failure most of the time and get, and doing it anyway is actually what I found to be the key. That is the key. And yeah. you just, you've articulated in a very nice way that I want people to really understand that every single successful person I've ever come across, and I'm talking about all the way from conversations with um, Oprah, Barack mm -hmm. Obama, to when I worked in social services, to you know, a gentleman who was you know, 65 years old and was homeless, but now had found, um, had gotten his first home. You know, and I consider that success. So when I'm saying successful people, I consider these all of success. And what I've learned is that no matter where you are, every single one of these people doubt themselves and believe that they're not going to be able to do it. Rock Oprah to that, to that person who was older and had to find the challenge to find his first home. And what it is, is just not letting that get you because that's what stops most people. Fear right. stops most people. Doubt stops most people. And you have to realize that even in your moments of doubt, you still have to take one step. Yeah. I always tell people, don't be afraid of growing slowly, only be afraid of standing still. And if you can do that, if you can grow slowly, you'll get to where you need to be. Well, I can already tell this is gonna be filled with about 14 words and 16 sermons. So attendees, 
get your questions in if you want them to be asked, okay? Because I might take up all the time. Um, now, really quickly before we get into your, because I want to get into your history, Mr. Okay. Caramo. Okay. Before we do that, we've been kind of starting these episodes with um, questions from the Culture Machine community, usually people about trying to break into the industry. So um, yeah. Brennan is going to pop in with a question from Sierra McCoy, and um, I'm going to answer it. And if you got something to say, feel free, Karamo. Love that. Uh, yeah, it's funny because you kind of already like addressed a little bit, but she said her question oh. is, uh, <laughs> no, she said my question is for writing an original idea. I know it's uh, perhaps super lame, but what are some ways you stay motivated or inspired to continue writing? Which you all mm. kind of like. I think, yeah, I think, I think one of the most important things to do in that beginning phase, which is the best phase, when you are just starting on an idea is to, one, give yourself permission to not have it perfect. Because if you need it to be perfect from the start, you're not going to be, it's just not going to be fun. Like going through all the necessary um, excavation and adventure and exploration you're going to have to do to, to make it come alive. I mean, I don't know exactly how this works, but it feels as if every story I've ever told like has a life of its own and that it's come, it has a soul and it, it's coming into the world in a very particular way. And my job is to kind of get out of the way and not sort of be like, it's gotta be a movie and it's gotta be a music video and it's gotta be about this because it already knows what it needs to be. So I think taking the pressure off in the beginning is super important and surrounding yourself with um, reference material. You know, I, I like, the first thing I love to do is like, okay, so I wanna tell a story about, you know, for instance, a woman who gets a sentient hair weave. Let's just say for instance, I would wanna do that. And I'd wanna call that movie Bad Hair and premiere it around October on Hulu. Um, let's <laughs> say if I did that, you know, it's like, well, then I wanna watch everything that sort of is horror, but I want to watch everything that's like psychological thriller, but I want to watch everything black and I want to watch music videos from the 90s. And like, you can like spend months not writing at all. <laughs> Just watching and getting inspired and, and getting to the point where like you can't sleep at night unless you start. That to me is like the best thing to do at the beginning. I agree. I yeah. Agree. You've written a few things, Karama. <laughs> I have written. And, and one of the things that I know to be true is that if you ever find your space in in, in, a, in a place where you just don't feel inspired to write, where you're doubting yourself, where you're feeling unsure, it is important for you to recharge yourself by finding inspiration in the world and in the things that you love. I mean, if I ever sit down and I feel writer's block, I don't sit there anymore. I get up and I go, mm. do something I, love. I will go dance to music. I will go. And then I, and then the minute that I feel that energy filling me, I go then back to the project and right. I use that moment and that feeling of energy to then like try to figure out something new for the project. Um, but I think a key word here would be patience. You know, I said this earlier, but I think writers need to be patient with their process, mm. patient with themselves and patient with the, the project evolving into what it needs to evolve into. Yeah. And um, it's, it's similar to parenting. You know, you got to know that, yes, you created this baby. It's going to grow, but it's going to grow at its own pace. It's going to grow and be what it needs to be. And eventually somebody might, the, the, the project might say, I want to be something else. And yeah. you have to be like, you can't be, you know, a hovering parent. You got to be able to be like, okay, let's grow with it and yeah. know that you'll be okay. Um, now, Bobby from the show Queer Eye calls you Karopra, which yeah. is amazing. Um, talk to me about how you became Karopra, because you, you know, I think the world discovered you on Real World, but that was just the beginning of your journey. So how did you, you know, what was it like going from that to, you know, being a, a psychotherapist to being a social worker? I, um, people used to call me Crazy Karamo after the Real World. Um, <laughs> I was like what I was known as. It was like, oh, he is crazy. And now I'm known as... Really? Yeah. Wow. White folks used to call me crazy all the time. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and so... because They, they still, like, they still call me that, so it's fine. Okay? So, um, but I think it's... Um, the journey was just like trusting that, you know, there's something greater for me. And I went through a lot of challenging moments, like literally after the real world, realizing like, okay now I'm in this fake place where I'm not famous. I'm infamous. Mm. 
and people mm. knew that money was coming with that fame. So like I was trying to keep up, pretend as if like I had money when I didn't. And like there was moments where I was like after the real world, I was like, I really need to get a job. But I didn't because I was like, oh, well, maybe there'll be another gig. Maybe they'll put me on another reality show. And I'm like family pressure of like, you know, what are you doing with your degree? What are you doing with your, what, what the hell are you doing? Right. And so it was just a lot of like, you know, learning curves, you know, like if my life could be summed up in one thing, I would, I would say my life is a slingshot. Mm. There were so many moments where I just kept getting pulled further and further and further and further back. Wow. And I just felt like I was constantly in this friction of like what I'm supposed to do, what people want me to do, what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And in each of those things, I was gaining a lesson. And what I learned is that when I let go and just became my authentic self, just like that slingshot, I soared to where I'm supposed to be. Mm. And so I, I always try to advise people that if you're in a space right now in your life where you find yourself in a lot of transition or confusion, think of yourself as that slingshot. And there's going to become a moment where you're going to let go and realize I got the lessons, time to soar to something greater. And that's really what took me to like the, the life I have now, letting go of like other expectations of me, what others think I should be doing and what the undue pressures I put on myself and just kind of said, no, I'm just going to live and live with the purpose of being happy and helping others to be happy as well. And it was kind of got me to where I am. That's amazing. And boy, you have a way with an analogy. Slingshot. Damn. I kept going further and further away until I let go. Damn it. That was good. That was so good. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about, talk to me a little bit about that going further away process. Like, you know, you, you sort of, Oh my God. Like what you were saying, first of all, about the aftermath of the real world and having to contend with how people saw you because you were literally on television and on a reality show. So people think that that was, it encompasses all of your reality. And they also think that you're famous and you're rich and all this stuff. And, and I think most people think of famous people or like people in Hollywood as like royalty, but the truth is we're carnies. Like it's hot mess. We are like (laughs) trying to rub two pennies together and look like we're fabulous and have a whole team do this. But like, Ain't nobody got that kind. Of, I don't know who you y'all think are paying us, but it's not okay. like that. <laughs> Seriously, I tell people that people who want to come into this industry, I'm like, if you like being unemployed, <laughs> this is the business for you. Because, and depressed. Exactly. Because <laughs> the thing about you know whether you're in front of the camera or behind the camera, jobs don't last. It's not like your normal career where like you get a job and you could work there for 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like I have cousins who work at Walmart and they've been at Walmart or Target for like 15 years and like they have a pension, they have a whatever. If I'm on a show, whether I'm behind the camera or in front of it, it has an end date. And at that yeah. end date, I don't got employment. And it's hustle. Then employment again is it's like starting from scratch. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and people don't get that. So they just think like, oh, you got so much money. And like, I'm like, girl, like back then, you know what I mean? Not Crabs made me a little cute point, but you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, but it takes a minute though. It really takes a minute. And like, and you know, this is not true for everybody, but most of the black people, I would say it's true for. Whenever you see a black person get, like, please know that they worked extremely hard for that. It is so difficult to pull this thing together. So, okay, so speaking of the slingshot moment then, Okay. Um, let's talk about Queer Eye. Like, what brought you to to back, frankly, to reality TV? Yeah, so um, as I found out I was a father and then went and got custody of my kid and adopted another um, another kid. Okay, and let's I, slow that down because the kids yes. don't probably don't know everything. So yeah. you found out in your 20s that you had had a, ca- a kid at 16, right? 15, yeah. 15. I was fast. I was fast. Yes. Fast. Just like all the little Houston <laughs> kids. All of them. But me, my lame ass, was playing Nintendo Uh inside, wondering what people were doing my age. But go ahead. I would have known you. What's that time you were you on? I was like, okay, so it's called La Salette Place, which nobody knows what that means. So what I what I say is Third Ward, but like south of Third Ward. I know what Third Ward is. So yeah. uh, like is a street called Yellowstone. It was um right on 288. Yeah. It's called La Salette Place, but nobody calls it that or knows what that means. So it's basically Third Ward? 
It's like it's like a little south of Third Ward. It's not it's not as nice as Third Ward. <laughs> got it, got, got it. Um, yeah, because Third Ward is half hood, half rich. Like yeah, it's, it's bougie. Yeah, it's a little bougie up in there. Yeah. Um. So anyway, yeah. So I was I was fast and um got a girl, my best friend. I lost my virginity to her. Yes. Um, we had sex. It lasted two minutes, and then um, after it was done, I was like, "By the way, I'm gay, everybody." Um, okay, that's when you knew. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I knew already. But then that was the, like the confirmation, right? And literally, like, she already knew because she and I had we were best friends, and I kind of told her I was exploring my sexuality or whatever. Mm. And um, and then, but this is 1995, so we didn't have the advent of technology like we know today. Sure, so she moved. And I never thought of her ever again because now I'm living my life as a proud gay man. You know? Right. Then my parents got divorced. I had them move to Florida. And then when I was 26 and a half, I got a stack of papers on my doorstep for back child support for this child wow. I didn't know about. And I thought it was a joke. I thought, like, this ain't real. I ain't, wow. I ain't seen a girl. I ain't seen none of this since. And then I saw the paperwork and I saw her name. I saw my name. And I saw our child's name. And it freaked me out. Um, wow. from the family I was, it was sort of like, you need to go home, you need to handle this. Mm. And so I went back to Houston and met her. She was not being malicious because I think we like to have this narrative of black women being vindictive mm. or trying to hurt black men or trying to be um, deceiving. What I realized is that you have to understand, especially for anyone, and this is some, a lesson I had to learn early on, is that people make choices based on the traumas of their past that are lodged in their subconscious. Mm. And I, I, what I want to explain that we, we interact with someone and our ego makes us informs us that the reason they're doing something is because it's about us. Mm. They're trying to hurt us. They're trying to do something to us. It's, it's part of our DNA, our survival mechanism. We immediately think this is about us. And what I've learned is when someone comes to you or a situation happens, it's okay to step back and say, you're actually angry. And yes, our interaction may have triggered that, but this is something more. And it's and every single one of us, even in those moments when you have a conversation with your family, your partners, your children, there's something in your past that has made a moment greater. And mm. when you can realize that, you can then have more empathy for the person and better communicate. And so when I met her, I realized she wasn't trying to be deceitful. She just came from a broken family and didn't know how to communicate that we had a child together. Wow. And so um, I got custody of my child with her support, stayed in Houston, and then I adopted her other son um, because he was going through something and became a father of two overnight by the time I was 27. Wow. And as I was raising them, um, my youngest son asked me, what was my dream? And I told him my dream was to be a television host. Wow. And he was like, why are you not doing it? And I was like, because I got to feed your ass. That's from the, the mouths of babes. From the mouth of babes. And um, then decided like, why aren't I? And so I started that journey to leave Texas, to come back to LA and to now pursue an entertainment career properly. Not wow. like the, the infamy that I got from real world, but a real career where I was now investing time, effort, um, resources, and I was actually treating it like a full-time job. So I would leave work where I worked for eight or nine hours doing my regular job. And then I would then spend another five to eight hours working on my craft because yes. I believe each needed an equal amount of time. And I said, if I want to be successful, I have to give each an equal amount of time. And it started working. I got hired by OWN. I got hired then by HLN, Huffington Post as a host. And then I was hosting this MTV show in 2017 called Are You The One? Second Chances. Yes. We were done. And um, I'm a big believer that unless I got a check coming in, I'm unemployed. Right. And, you know, agents are like, they're like, no, 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 you have the project. We're going to, you know, just don't worry. And, you know, you got to be like a constant hustle. So oh, yeah, even right. if you got this going on, you got to have another thing. And so my agents were like, no, 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 you have a show. You don't need to end the show. And I was like, no. And I heard through the grapevine on TV that they were casting for a Queer Eye. I called my agents and they said they're already done casting. And I said, no, they're not. You wow. Really? Yep. They were already done. They had already finished. Wow. Um, and so I said, if you truly love me in a very sweet voice, I said, you're going to find a way to get me in. Yes. Talking to your agents like that. Yes. And I was like, and luckily they said, okay, we found a way, but they're going to give you an hour to talk because they're done and you have an hour to impress them. Wow. And so they brought me in 
three weeks before we basically were about to start shooting and um, did a chemistry test with the guys and I got the show. So I like came in last minute. Um, That's amazing. And whose yeah. spot did you take? <laughs> Um, I didn't take anyone's spot because they were still in the chemistry testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like trying they to figure out who the final. Yeah. yeah, it was like they just knew their top 30 or, two, you know, so five in each category. Right. Um, like that. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't take anyone's spot because the spot was clearly ordained for me. It was what, for you, honey. And that's what something you got to know. Two, two lessons in this story. Yes. First of all, Break don't, it down be for the of the no, don't be afraid of the no's you get in your life. Because especially when you're working in the entertainment industry, you're going to constantly be given no's. And understand that no's are, 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 any, are only stepping stones for you to climb to the yes that you deserve, that you've been working for. So every time I got a no, I said, let me step on this to get close to the yes. Mm. And, and, and what I learned on one of those no's is that you have to advocate for yourself more than anyone else. Because yeah. people will try to stop you and block your blessings by making you feel like their no is the last no on like that's coming. Mm. And you have to be able to say, no, 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 no. I actually am still going. Because until I get my yes, you're not the final say. And so you got to keep going and advocating for yourself. Because if I were to listen to my agents, I would not be on Queer Eye right now. Wow. That is wild. Because I can't even imagine that show without you. I mean, you're so, it's obviously what your destiny <laughs> was. I mean, just seeing you interact with the people on that show, the perspective that you bring, the fact that you uh, you guys just got seven Emmy nominations. I mean, it's like, this is what was meant to happen. Ah, yes! Ah, ah, ah. inches. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It's the first time that we might be able to take one home. So, like, the show gets yeah. nominated and, like, everybody else gets one, but we don't. But this year, we've been nominated as host. Outstanding host. And so... Um, if we win, now I can have one in my house, which would be really nice. And well, I'm in the Academy and I will be voting for you. And Thank you! Black. Thank you. <laughs> Everything black, okay? Baby? Everything black. Sorry, other races. Um, no, I'll, I'll vote for other races, but I'm sorry, Mrs. Maisel. It's not yeah, going to be for you. Okay, so um, shade aside, talk to me a little bit about being on the show. So you're on the show. You got the gig. We're walking in our purpose. Day one, we're in Lubbock, Texas. I just made that up. I don't know where the first episode took place. Yeah. But you're in, you know, what is that? I, th I don't think anyone really, really understands the process of making these things. So yeah. talk, talk to me about that. Um, that well, crucible. It, it, was, it was very nice to be in business with Netflix because mm. they had a clear vision. And it's nice when you're in with people who have a vision of where they want to go. But there was also conflict because our show is based on a reboot. So each of us were supposed to be playing a role from the reboot. They wanted mm -hmm. to recreate what was before. And that was an internal struggle for me because of the fact that the culture expert on the original show was a Broadway star. So he gave out tick, you know, Broadway tickets and you know, he talked about art galleries. And my career was in mental health. And so I was like, I'm not giving out tickets. And mm -hmm. so we had this internal struggle um, season one where you can watch back. They were making me build websites. Like they mm. cut out majority of the heartfelt conversations I was having because they were like, no, 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 no. You, we need you to do something cultural, build a website, build, do this. And I was like, I'm talking to these people about what their emotional trauma is because, right. because, and this is what I advocated for since day one, which is what I helped, I think helped me get the show was, I was like, you can fix someone's hair. You can fix their outfit. You can change their house. And you can give somebody a new meal to eat. But unless you figure out why they didn't do that on their own, they're just going to go right back. Mm. And it was like, clearly, we got to get to the emotional core of what is going on, what is stopping you. And um, mm. But season one, they weren't having it. They were like, this is a lighthearted show. The original show was lighthearted. We don't want tears. Like, literally, I got told so many times in season one, stop. I remember, I can't say the person, but this person who had some say in the show, came into the, um, we were in episode three, came into the trailer with me and the guys, and literally in front of everyone, started berating me and was like, do not make anyone cry, stop it, stop getting to the core, stop it, and was screaming at me, swear to God. Um, this is what we watch the shows for, people. <laughs> this is Thank why you. we watch. For the comedy and the tears. And literally, Luckily, I had four people next to me who, after this person walked out of the trailer, were like, do not listen to that. 
We see what you're doing. We know it's a, a critical piece of what we're all doing because they're all talented. And they're like, they saw my talent just as valid as the fact that, you know, Tan has had a fashion line, the fact that Jonathan's on his own salon. And they saw my talent just as much as I saw theirs. And after this person walked out, they were like, do not. They were like, we will always give you the space to talk. We will always give you the space to get deeper. We will always give you the space to let it cry. We will walk away. And it was because we bonded that it worked. And then the show came out and people responded to those tearful moments without, without, because in season one, you don't ever see me having the deep conversations like now they edit in. Mm -hmm. they, you would just see the aftermath, the tears. Right. And people responded to it. And then they were like, oh, so remember when we told you not to do that? Can you actually do it more? Wow. And um, so it was an evolution. And so being on the show is just like life. You have to kind of like allow things to evolve while also advocating for what you know is best. Mm -hmm. That's what I queer I, What were you gonna say? Sorry, I cut you off. No, and that's what queer has been for me. Well, I, I wanna I wanna stop there because there's something I you know it's not in the prepared remarks, but something that I like to talk about a lot is you know this sense of like the 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 gay black like queer spirit like this is a, like we are you know gay black men are responsible for so many innovations in culture mm -hmm. and you know from gospel music okay we want to talk about a beyonce visual album let's talk about the gay men that infuse that visual album with choreography and fashion i mean she talks about it too so there's no shade yeah, she does yeah but like you know black gay men are, are are rarely in front of the things that they innovate and to me the fact that you as a black gay man on this show, you inherently, it was, in my opinion, it's not just because this was your path and all that stuff, but also because like, we grew up with Oprah and Ayanla and you knew that that's what that need, something in you knew what the others did not know. Yeah, <laughs> is, that so, is that something you feel or think about? Yes, all the time. Like what you just said about like hitting on the nose is like, people forget like, it's, you know, Beyonce, actually, since we're talking about Beyonce, she said it last night in the um, visual album. Yes. She was, like, she was like, how can you look outside of what they framed it as? And I Ooh. think that's so powerful. Because that's it. If people put us in a frame and they say, this is the picture. And you're thinking like, you forget that outside of the panoramic view of that photo, we are handling as black gay men, as black queer people, um, as black trans people, we are like, have been at the forefront of art, culture, politics, tech, for so long, we have literally been paving the way and then other people come and take it or steal it or do work with us, but don't pay us enough and don't try to highlight what we've done. And so it's always been in us. It's in all of us. It's mm -hmm. like literally in all of us, this like amazing talent that they have framed as if it's not in us. Yeah. They make it seem as if it's not there. And so you're right. Like, I instinctively knew because I've watched Black folks always have the emotional language to lead the conversation. Because let's be real, as Black people, we have had to endure the most trauma and have to always emotionally process. And sometimes I think that we, we're a little hard on ourselves as a culture because yeah. we're like, oh, you know, Black people don't talk about therapy and all that stuff. But we've had to learn how to equip and adapt that we've done so we've done so much that like that's why um oprah was so successful because white people had never been having these conversations with themselves right they white didn't know that that was a thing you could do they didn't know you know what i mean they might have been going to traditional yeah. therapy but they didn't un they never understood this and so um I, I did. I did recognize that. Just like what you did. I mean, come on. Let's. I, I know you've been giving me some praise, but I want to praise you. Look at okay. your. Project. I remember your project when it was. I remember when you were still online, and I remember being in my office working as a social worker. And oh, it was. Wow. It was the original like um, little snippet clip you had did. Yeah, the teaser trailer. All, over and over the teaser trailer, and then the GoFundMe, and I was like, we gotta donate. Oh. This is so good. But it was the first time I was like, oh my gosh, someone's like speaking. And it was wow. in your heart that you knew you had something brilliant. It's because it was innate in you that you knew this was going to resonate. And the fear that most people would have had to say- and I had to. <laughs> we had to not call it dear white people. Let's be real. They would have, that fear, I'm sure people have been like, oh, you know, let me water it down. Let's call it like, hey, let's talk folks. And then it wouldn't have had the power that it has. And so I just praise you because you knew what was in you and you knew that it had to come out so that it could be in the world living and breathing. And so 
I, I just hope that most black creatives know, like trust your gut, trust who you are because there's so much power in who you are that it's like, it's just, it's ready just to be there. Don't let what they framed you as be the only picture you're looking at. Well, I really appreciate that because in a lot of ways, that's where the question came from. I was being asked about this yesterday, you know, what made you make the decision to make it funny and tragic? And I, and I said, and my answer was like, it wasn't a decision, you know, like as a queer black person, I live in between the spaces all of the time. Thank you. We've been funny and tragic. It's like, girl, like- funny and tragic is what life is to me. Yeah. And, 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 and it's just the fact that I'm, I'm, I, I sort of forged this little spot in culture that you have kept black gay people from having for so long is why you have this new thing. It's not, you know, it's not like a choice that I made. It was like, this is the only way I knew to, to do it, to put it, you know? Um, and I attributed that to being both black and queer, frankly. Um, so shout out to that. All right, look, we're going to take a fake break. I say fake break because when I take a break with the guests, we're not really taking a break. But you listening at home about to hear some commercials and you better buy some shit. And we're back. Okay. I hope you got your Casper mattresses. I forget what else they sell on podcasts, but I hope you got them all. Anyway, uh, we're back with Karamo Brown and... Honestly, like literally, I, I have like these prepared notes here that our producer Aaliyah lovingly put together. And I feel like there's 14 podcasts to be had. <laughs> We're not gonna get to it like to everything. So I'm just gonna start jumping to things that I, I just wanted to talk to you about. Sure, I'm down. Um, so uh so one of the things that you you talk about is um fear versus love uh when making a decision. Yes. Um I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, there's two, when people make decisions, they make two decisions. It's either a fear-based decision or a love-based decision. And um, it's very critical to understand that when you make fear-based decisions, what you're doing is you're blocking yourself from the life that you wanted and that you deserve. And you have to be able to critically think about when you're making those so that you can acknowledge your fear-based decisions. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, when you're about to say something to someone or decide a choice in your life, if you start questioning and saying like, oh, this can't happen, if there's whatever, if anything negative, if there's a, a no or something that comes up, you're making a fear-based decision and that will never succeed. You'll never go forward. So if you're not going to go to this party because, oh, you think no one's gonna to talk to you, that's a fear-based decision. If you make a love-based decision, you start to say, well, I can go here because I know there's gonna be one person who's gonna resonate with me. Yeah. I can go here because I actually think that I deserve a good time. See, so it's switching the language in your mind to realizing instead of what you're not gonna have, realizing what you deserve mm -hmm. and walking in that space instead. And so I just encourage people to like look at that in their own lives of making love-based decisions versus fear-based decisions. That's really great advice. And, and, you know, because I get asked a version of this uh, specifically, specifically from people trying to break into the industry. Um, I'm just going to jump in and, and give an example that you can look up right now if you'd like uh, yeah. people listening at home. So I made a web series called Instant Messages. I-N-S-T-M-S-G-S. -S -S. 300 views, I believe, was like the highest it ever got watched. That was a fear-based decision. I love that I made this web series, okay? I love the web series. I we did a lot of fun stuff with it. But the reason it was what it was is because in my mind, you know, I'm, I'm working uh, in publicity. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at a desk. I'm answering phones. And I'm thinking, like, well, what's the, what's like, what does the industry have space for me in? Like, what could I do that, like, is a thing already? And I'm looking at, like, okay, people are making web series now. But in my heart, I wanted to make a movie. I wanted to make Dear White People. It was sitting, you know, unfinished in a file somewhere in, in, on a computer in my closet. And I, and, but I didn't make that because that was terrifying to me. I was too afraid to make a feature because I didn't even know how you do that. So I made this web series. And honestly, I'm glad I did it. It was great. Um, but nobody watched it. <laughs> Got no money from this thing. Yeah. Nothing happened. It wasn't until I decided to make Dear White People, which was the impossible dream. 
that like literally I wrote this script and people would read it and be like, oh my God, the script is great. This will never get made in a million yeah. years. That was the thing that popped. And when we made that concept trailer and it went viral and my black ass is on CNN, none of the, all of these things were surprising to me. I had no expectations. Yes, yeah. But I, but, but I had this moment where I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna go for the thing that I really want. I'm gonna go for the thing that makes my heart well, sick. I, I love that story. And what I want people to hear from your story about like, especially the fear-based decision is that I heard you say, I, you asked yourself, well, where do I fit in this industry? Mm. Oh, people are making this. So the question of where do I fit in is a fear-based decision because you fit in anywhere you go, anywhere that's going to make you happy and anything that's going to bring you happiness is where you fit in. And there's not, you don't have to like try to fit yourself into this category because that's all you think the space is available for you. You can take up as much space as you want and you desire. And so when I hear that, and one of the things that like triggers in my inner ear is like, that's where the fear came from. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can take up every space that I want. I don't think that I can create a movie because my soul is telling me that I have to fit into this. I can only do this. And I think when we, you, what you've shown and proven is when you got out of that and you made a love-based decision and said, I love this concept and I love this movie. And I feel like I don't have to fit in by doing something. I can do this. That's when the world opened up to you. And yeah. I think that's such an important concept for people to understand because someone at home right now is working on something or doing something out of a fear that this is all that they can do or all that they deserve. And what they need to hear right now is that you can do more and you deserve more. Just start making love-based decisions for yourself and understand that you don't have to fit in or only do what other people have told you because you are greater than their fear. You are Mm. greater than what they have said. You are greater than anything anyone has ever told you. So go after the love of your life. Woo! Can I get an amen? Amen. That was, oh, (laughs) yes, gay man. Um, That was brilliant. Oh my God, so many words. wisdom are being dropped and now i gotta scatter this like okay i only got time for two more questions so like of, of these billion questions i want to ask you which one should i do next okay i want to talk about this one because as a representative because that's what you i mean you, as a personality as a person on queer eye you represent black gay men like yeah. you, you know uh, which is like a burden and a curse and and also yes. probably a gift in certain moments um but like I think that one of the things that's really amazing about you, and it also was really amazing to watch you watch yourself on Real World, is that you were in that moment when you're being chased down the street and being sort of accosted for having a perfectly normal reaction to being racially profiled. (laughs) You watching back that clip is like, oh, I wish I had the language to communicate with him better. You You have a sense of compassion um, at the step that seems to be able to operate at the same time as observation. You can both observe what the situation is and sort of bring up this compassion for the person that you're talking to. And, yeah. and you have gotten accused in, by, in, in ways that I've also gotten accused of quote unquote pandering to straight white people. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, got, I got shit from black and white people when I put out dear white people. Why yeah. has it got to be addressed to white people? You know, yeah. it doesn't matter that it's a misnomer, but like, why do, why do you, what is, who cares what they think? And, you know, now we're sort of, we're in this moment where we're recognizing, oh, the reason why Black Lives Matter is having such a moment is because white people are, lear- are joining it and, and we're having this like interracial dialogue. And, you know, of course we need our own communities, but they're also, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of grappling with that right now. Yeah. What, how do you deal with that? Because you get shit sometimes for being kind. <laughs> Yeah, crazy white people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I'm going to say this, rightfully so. Mm. Um, We know as black folks, sometimes you're just like, fuck, enough is enough. Mm. And it's like, you just get tired. We know as being at the intersection of black and gay, sometimes we're just like, enough is enough. And so I never want to discount anybody who's black or whatever who's like, who's like, why are you talking to this goddamn crazy ass white folk? Why, why the hell are you doing it? I understand their frustration. I understand what their experience is. Um, but to that point, I say this, I am a believer that there's a yin and yang for everything. And I believe that there need to be people who say, 
F you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to try to understand your point of view. I've tried it before. My mother tried it before. My grandmother tried it before. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to. But then I believe the yang to that is there has to be somebody who says, I actually feel like I have the capacity and I feel like I have the strength and I feel like I'm safe enough to be able to engage with these people in hopes that I can make change in another way while you, my other brothers and sisters, are making a change in this way. And so for me, it's always about that duality. And I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we want things to be very monolithic and we want to, we want to say, well, if you're not with us, you're against us instead of saying, well, you're with me, but you're walking a different path. Yeah. And I, I always make reference to like Malcolm and Martin and how, you know, we revere Martin now. You know, we love Martin now. Say it. There was many, there was many of black folks that were like, F Martin, we not, we like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what, why are you over here talking to me? Why are you being peace? You know, like it was non-violence, a, non-violence. Like they, asses. why are you telling, why are you telling me to just allow myself to get my ass whooped instead of whatever? And now here we are years later, people are like, oh my gosh, so great. And I'm not saying that either man's approach was right or wrong, but I believe there's a duality to both. And again, it's about, do you have the capacity and feel safe enough and feel like, you can go into these spaces and talk because at the end of the day, I need, uh, you know, this, the systemic racism that, you know, is, is just thread throughout the fabric of our country. Yes. Even though um, it began May 30th of this year. Exactly. Um, it's, it's gotten, it's just done a lot since then. Yeah, seriously. It just, <laughs> but the thing is, it's like, I'm like, we didn't create it as black people. We didn't create it as um, LGBTQ plus people. We didn't create this as, you know, we didn't create these issues. White folks create these issues. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want to pretend like I don't need them, I need them so they can dismantle it. And so listen, I need my brothers and sisters to cuss them out, to like let them know, to say, I'm fed up, go do your own work. And while you're doing that, I'm also going to be trying to work with some of the, it's again, just the duality. I think we have to remember yin and yang, same path, um, same purpose, different paths. And, um, and I just have to, you know, stay firm in my conviction. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this, Mm -hmm. you know, there's certain things that we have done so that we can attain success that we have in this business. But what I also know about you and I, what I know about myself is that I've been criticized for certain things, but then I'm not criticized for the fact that I've also opened doors so that other black folks can come in. So like anytime I'm on a project, I ensure that they're hiring a number of black people. I'm ensuring that they're hiring other gay black people and other trans black people. I'm constantly saying, bring them in. Where's our stories? And so it's like, again, if I was just to say, I don't have the capacity to deal with this, then I would have never been able to open the door for myself and other people. And so I just wanted to say, just understand that. Same purpose, different paths. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautifully articulated way to put it. You know, I, I also feel the same way. I think, I think the reason why Dear White People was a little edgy for people was that it did, it, it embraced a gray area between black and white. And it admitted that like, paradox is nothing if something's not a paradox it's probably not true like if something is easy or like clear it's probably not really the full truth it's probably like a relative truth you better and and this idea that there had to be like that malcolm and martin were two opposing ways to approach civil rights it's another form of, of institutionalized racism because white leaders and white people have all kinds of ways to be and and yet black people are sort of forced to choose between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. But the truth is, you needed both. You needed you, you needed, um, you know, Whitney Young in, in, in sort of talking uh, to government people. You know, he's lighter skinned, uh, knew how to talk like a white politician could get in there and have those conversations. You needed Stokely Carmichael to get people, you know, revved up in the streets. You needed Malcolm X to make the black community feel like they were worth protecting. And, yes. you know, you needed all of these facets to, to do it. It wasn't one way or another. That's yeah. that's a really stupid way of thinking about things that we all just kind of were raised up to feel. So I love I love that answer. Uh, and and I think that you know any way to encourage, especially people of color and especially queer people, to stop thinking in such you know black or white terms. I think is is really worthwhile. So I gotta tell you, you know, because the thing was is that, and this I'm gonna be quick on this one and brief. 
I, like I got canceled last year, um, uh, you know, and like a majority of the hate was coming from either gay people or black folks. Mm. And I, I just sometimes, would, I, I mean, there was a couple of mornings I would wake up and I would just be in my bed and I would just like kind of like start crying because I was like, do y'all really think like my gay black ass has it any ch- You think I really can just, you think I can join the other side? Like, is that, is that what you think is about to happen right now? You think that like, I'm that delusional that I think that I'm fighting. Like my fight is for us. Like, because at the end of the day, no matter what um, perceived privilege I seem to have because I'm on television, I promise you when I, which happened just last week, I'm walking through the grocery store and literally I'm being followed by mm. the little white man who's the store security. And I, at first I was like, no, nah, he's not following me. He's just like, whatever. And then I see him literally because the majority of my neighborhood is white. I'm like, you really are following me. And I'm like, I know, I, 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 there's no delusion in my mind that when I walk on the world, I'm black. Yeah. And that then when I start to express to people my authenticity, that I am gay to them. And I don't have an option to switch up. So if you don't agree with my fight or my path, just remember, I have the same purpose as you. And I yeah. think that's what we need to keep constantly reminding people, like, don't stop hating. Like, you know, like. Well, something yeah. I want to tell you, too, because, you know, um, I, I don't think I've been officially canceled, but I've certainly had a lot of people hate me on Twitter yeah. <laughs> for a variety of reasons through the years. Uh, that's why it's not on my phone at the moment, uh, or at yeah, least my, my sure. actual account is not. I don't remember the password. I can't sign into it. Um, so. Uh, but one of the things I was told recently, and I, and I kind of went through a bit of some depression this year, just, just trying to juggle and balance like the personality of Justin and the person of Justin and, and separating them and protecting them. And one of the things um, my therapist told me actually is that like you have to realize that like if you're a public person, you are a therapist in the sense that if you're standing in front of a bunch of people, they're going to transfer onto you. It's something that a therapist has to learn. Um, you know all about this, is that like people are having, yes, yeah, so why am I telling you? Anyway, so people are having like, you know, and people have to have a negative transference uh, as part of their process sometimes. Sometimes they have to yell at you like you were their father or yell at you like you were that one person that put them down. Like people need to do that to you. And it's our job to sort of know that that's not really about us. Kind of like what you said at the beginning. Why am I saying any of this, Karamo? You already said these things. I know. I just, I just I, want to express myself as well. No, I love it. I love it. I, <laughs> the thing is, is that it, it, bears, it needs to be repeated. Because it's the thing that people are not, people don't get and they're not hearing enough. So yes, people need to hear like, yeah, you know, as you being a public figure, people are putting their stuff on you. And it's going to be negative. And that's where you have to sort of sit back and say, this is not about me. This is this is them and their process. And that's why I said at the beginning of this is like I acknowledge that. You know, when I got canceled, I did I I was like, I was like, I get it. I did you receive something in the mail? Like what does that what does that process entail? Oh my gosh. Let me tell you something. <laughs> it, I, wish, I wish it was as easy as like a bill that's like you're passing right? you will cancel you. No, like a parking fine. Like you show up at a certain point or you pay the fine and really what people don't understand, which it's, it's, I think people do understand, but they don't truly understand is especially with Hollywood talent. Um, public opinion is, is basically our HR. Mm. And so when people say they don't like you for something, it then transfers to the money that I make and the ability to feed my family. Mm. And literally when I got canceled, I literally, all of a sudden, these amazing deals that I was closing that were going to give work, give work to. I mean, there was a, a pro, it didn't get, it didn't get, uh, didn't lose it, but luckily, but it got close, and it literally was something that was going to help so many black folk. And mm. I'm in this room, and they're like, "Well, you know, we have to figure out because you know, people are a little upset about your statement." And I was like, "I was like, but I didn't, I didn't say anything bad. I just, I, I was saying that I'm gonna." be nice to somebody who's on the opposite side of my political views. I, I was like, I was very confused. I was like, I didn't say anything about race. I didn't say anything that could, I was like, I said, I'm going to be nice to someone who has different political views than me. And I, I started to realize like, oh, when you cancel me, you, you recklessly can end my livelihood with no recourse. And then this is the problem about cancel culture that I can't mm. stand mm. is that, you then move on. So you have destroyed me, but now you've moved on and now yes. I don't have any capacity. And I think what we need to learn is that 
instead of ca- um, canceling, we need to be counseling. And mm. I think that if we could be more- You, you I get out of here, Carabo. Say that again. Instead of canceling, we should be <sighs> counseling. I want and I think that it. if we could get this generation whose voice is so powerful online to understand that there are more constructive ways to counsel someone to mm. helping them to understand your point of view and to get it. And I, again, I understand there's some people who just been doing problematic stuff for years. And then at mm. that point, you got to be like, okay, there needs to be a judge and a jury. Well, that's the, that's the tricky part. That's the tricky part because yeah. then you sort of just are so fatigued. Because there are some people that need it, but it's not, people, yeah, not most agree, of the people that get it. There's yeah. some people that need it, judge and jury. But if yeah. there's someone who is at a beginning of a learning curve, a beginning of a growth, a beginning of doing something that you feel is inherently not supportive of who you are, that's the moment you counsel. Mm. And because we have this mob mentality through social media, especially through Twitter, um, which I think that it should be shut down, honestly, is we then- Don't become, disagree. You know, we then become a mob and cancel instead of counsel. And so I just, I just think that there needs to be better training about this. I, I mean, look at this. We, we have now engaged into a new world and no one has, there's no rules being set. And what we know about, um, you know, any culture, you need sort of value systems that people can inherently know that this is, that's what the word culture means. It's shared mm. values and attitudes. Mm-hmm. And we need to start developing better that shared values and attitudes around social media because people are growing up in this world reckless. And what I'm scared about is like these kids today who will then see it backfire on them when they're 20, mm. 30, 40. And I don't want that. But if we don't get something together to say, this is not okay, then because truth be told, the people who already have the power, the true power, we try to get online and you ain't hurting them at all. They're, right. they're still lining their pockets. Right, yeah. And then, the people who are actually in power who don't need a profile to do anything. <laughs> you know, don't need... We're all on social media because we're trying to like raise our here. checks up. Yeah, you can't send John down here who literally, once you take his check, yes, you've done something and made you feel better, but the power structure that's still up here... It's still going. It's still in I love that. Council not canceled. Man, that's really good. All right. So we got to take one more break. We're going to be back with the final segment. Don't at me with Karama Brown. And we're back. We're back. Okay. So Karamo. This is the, one more time, just really quickly before you say what? it. What? Tell me. I love the, t- the title of your show because the more <laughs> we talk, I'm just, I just want to be like, everybody don't at me. This, everyone, this is Karamo from Netflix Square Eye. Don't at me. Don't at me. I don't at me, please. This, that's all I'm asking. You know, because I think what it came from is just like so much of what I have to say, you can't properly respond to in an at anyway. Yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, let's have a conversation. I mean, the you know, social media is there because I feel like I need it. People need it um, specifically for my career. But it, it does not it's not the best medium to talk about things sometimes. It's why I make movies. It's the worst medium to talk, actually. It's one of the worst. Um, okay, so speaking of Don't Me, we're going to do our last little game. Um, okay. I did not steal this from Andy Cohen. I don't know what you're talking about, Karamo, but I'm going to ask you three questions, okay. and you can say Don't At Me to one of them. Got so it. use your Don't At Me very carefully. I'm not going to use any of them because I am um, an. You do. You be telling the truth. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well, I got to ask you a really good one then. Let me see what's the hard ones. Okay. So, um, first question: Who has the better food, Jamaica, Cuba, or the South? Um, well, Jamaican food and Cuban food are very similar. As being, mm-hmm. you know, for my family, um, being Jamaican and Cuban. Um, and I think that Southern food is destroying the arteries of many black folks. So I would How say- How dare you? It's the truth though. It's the truth. Um, I'm gonna fry pork chops as soon as this conversation is over. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I eat them. I'm just saying, I'm just throwing them. Um, I would say that it is um, Jamaican. Ooh, what you cooking for me, Karamo? I want some. I some curry goat. You want some curry goat? I have some yes. Right. I don't know what it is. I want it. Yeah, it's, it's just goat. Goat. Oh, so good. I'm not sure if I'm ready, but I'm You're ready. ready. You're I'm ready. Creole, so we ate all kind of crazy shit, too. Exactly. You are. 
<laughs> okay. Easy, don't at me. I know. They're all going to be easy, Karama. I think only one person has said, two people I think have said don't at me in the history. <laughs> I want some challenging hard ones. I want you to ask and come for it, but okay. I know. I got to I got to get back. I got to get into my like cup for a mindset. But I can't do it with you. I just I just didn't really have questions. Okay. So, of the Fab 5, who's your bestie? Um, Bobby Burke. But I knew it was Bobby. I knew it was Bobby. Give me my coins, Aaliyah and Brendan. I told y'all that before the show started. Okay, of the remaining three, this is your last question. Jonathan, Tan, Anthony, fuck, Mary, kill. Oh, that's simple. Um, um, Mary, Tan, um, fuck, Jonathan, Ooh. kill, Anthony. Bye, Anthony. By the way, we have the same answers. Um, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean... At just I would never want any of that to happen with any of them. But of course like, not. Yeah, but, but for the fun played, of the game, we played this game before with all of us, and oh. one of the, it's funny because when we played it, um, we all were like, um, I got everyone was like they'd marry me or Tan, mm -hmm. um, and then they were like they would have sex with um, Jonathan because it would seem like it'd be wild, and normally, <laughs> yeah, and so. <laughs> It was kind of like we played this game within each other. We kind of all had similar answers. This it would be wild. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I love all of y'all. And I love you. And thank you so much for doing this, man. This is really thank great. You. Before we leave, um, I, I, we do a little section called Note to Self where uh, I invite my guests to say something to themselves when they were starting out. What's something that you, you wish you could have heard or maybe you needed to hear? Oh, um, starting out? Yeah, I had a couple um, starts. So you had think, a few starts. It's true. Yeah, you know, so I, I think that's probably what I need to hear is that mm. you're you're going to start over and over again several times, and I don't want you to look at those as um, endings of who you are or the career that you desire. Looking them at new um, flowers growing just in your garden. And so I think that if you can look at your career as like a full garden and something's going to bloom and then it might wither, but the seed is still planted, another one will bloom and another will bloom. And I think that allows you to understand that your career will blossom. It might not all happen at once and it might, something might wither in the between, but just keep watering it and you will get the garden you want eventually. Beautiful. It is an honor to share space with you, sir. I really I appreciate you, you taking the time. I, really do. I really do love you. I just Me so too. I love you too, man. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> this was a pleasure. And thank you guys, everyone, for joining. I feel like people were just like wrapped listening to the things that you were saying. So we didn't really get to many questions today. But um, thank you again, Karamo. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You'll be able to hear the, uh, the actual podcast version of this episode very, very soon. We're going to be having all kinds of Don't At Me announcements coming soon. Uh, and uh, take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And if you love the show, leave us a rating and a review. And if so inclined, feel free to at me, your host, at Justin underscore Simeon on Instagram. Also, please follow Culture Machine at Culture Machine Co. on Instagram. Credit goes to Jason Smith, CEO of Starburns Audio. Jessica Gutierrez, our audio engineer. Judith Cargbo, our production coordinator. Chris Bowers did the theme song. Dominic German did incidental music. And shout out to producers Aaliyah Jihad and Brennan Smith for another wonderful job for Culture Machine. Till next time. Starburns Audio, a, podca <clears throat> a podcast network.